0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Okay, this is a part two uh, of our our two-parter on Fritz Duquesne. And we are going to pick up right where we left off in the story of the life of Fritz Duquesne adventurer and spy. So, if you did not listen to the first part, you really should, or this is probably going to make no sense whatsoever.
1: So, when we left off, Fritz had made his way after an escape from Bermuda to Patterson, New Jersey. He had done this through a network of Boer sympathizers. After a few weeks in Patterson, he got word that the American Transvaal League in New York would be able to help him. He got set up in the city and worked first as a subway conductor, which he really hated, and then as a subscription collector for the New York Herald. Fritz wasn't really content in that role either, but he was able to
0: parlay it into work as a reporter, and that launched a nice little career for him. He started writing about some of his adventures back in Africa, and these articles in the Herald were so popular that other papers started to become interested in him. So for the five years from 1904 to 1909, Duquesne was moving from paper to paper as one after another made him more lucrative offers. And this reputation and income also offered Duquesne the best payment of all, the opportunity to craft an identity for himself entirely to his own liking.
1: He wrote several novels and plays and even started lecturing in his own chameleon way, Duquesne had made himself into a perfect New York gentleman with enough celebrity to stay employed. Fritz wrote about all kinds of globe-trotting travel and embedded reporting that he was doing, but most of these claims are unsubstantiated, although he did seem to do quite a bit of traveling during this time. Still, at the time, readers believed that he was rubbing elbows with important people and that he was an expert on big game hunting in Africa, Both of those were pretty true because of his upbringing, and it was that writing that piqued the interest of President Theodore Roosevelt. Eventually, Fritz, as well as a number of other experts on the subject of safari hunting, were invited to the White House. And this was precipitated in part because of, as Roosevelt's interest in big game hunting and his plans for an African trip once he left office were made public... Duquesne started writing a series of articles titled, Hunting Ahead of Roosevelt in East Africa.
0: Duquesne's visit to Washington, D.C. to visit the president was sensational enough that a cartoon about it ran in the Washington Star. The art by Clifford K. Berryman, which is titled Seeking Pointers, features an excited-looking caricature of the president showing Duquesne, who is clearly identified by his name, scrawled across the band of a cap that's on the floor, all of the animals that he's interested in, and he is using a pointer, of course. There was no boasting needed after this. Duquesne was associated with the president as someone who Roosevelt sought out for advice, and that made him sought out by more and more people. And he saw how lucrative this position was, and he started a lecture tour about Roosevelt's travels while the president was in Africa, titled East Africa, the Wonderland of Roosevelt's Hunt.
1: Fritz knew that tension sold papers. He started writing articles, many of which were printed all over the country through syndication, about how doubtful he was that Roosevelt could handle East Africa's challenges. He would boast of his own level of comfort with the various perils, like animals and tropical diseases, just shooing them off as so common to him that they seemed mundane. But then he would mention that they were potentially deadly to a tourist hunter like the president, he also dropped in comments about just how poor Roosevelt's health was to get readers wondering if the next article would be reporting Teddy Roosevelt's death.
0: And it was because of all of these articles and his lectures that Louisiana Representative Robert F. Broussard got in touch with Duquesne about hippos, which is how I discovered Duquesne when I was working on uh, th- those two episodes. Obviously, this is all covered in those episodes, so we're going to give you just the broad strokes here. Broussard was trying to solve the problem of a U.S. meat shortage by introducing a bill that would fund the import of hippos to the United States. Those hippos, in theory, could live off of the hyacinth that was a problem because it was overgrowing much of the South, and then they could be slaughtered for their meat. This may seem like it solves two problems, but is, in fact, a terrible
1: idea. Yes, it did not work. Uh all the details in those other episodes, Duquesne testified before a Senate committee that he was an African animal himself and that hippos were easy to raise and delicious. He also had a list of other species that they might want to think about importing as livestock. And to support this plan, Duquesne started writing articles explaining what a good idea it was. (laughs) Again, it was not a good idea. And thankfully, for a variety of reasons, this whole hippo plan fell apart.
0: Something else had happened once Duquesne got to the U.S., aside from this launch of a strange career in journalism. During that brief stay we mentioned when he was in New Jersey, Alice Wortley, the young American woman that he had met while he was a prisoner in Bermuda, found him, presumably through the system of Boer sympathizers that he had been in contact with and that she would have known about because she was living on Bermuda at the time. And the two of them started a courtship, and then they were married in the summer of 1910.
1: Even after the less-than-flattering articles he had written about Roosevelt, Duquesne campaigned for him in 1912. Doubts about his physical fitness aside, it seemed that Fritz Duquesne respected Roosevelt so much that he wrote a lengthy brochure about why Roosevelt should be elected president once again. The ending statement of his brochure read, quote, Your vote will decide whether the people shall rule or the corrupt corporations. The fight will be between Woodrow Wilson, the writer of history, and Theodore Roosevelt, who makes it. Undoubtedly, Duquesne was also hoping for a little favor to fall his way if Roosevelt won the election, but he never found out because Roosevelt lost to Wilson. And while
0: that defeat may have cast a shadow over 1912, Fritz was part of another project that year that had greater success, and that was the founding of the Adventurers Club of New York. Arthur Sullivan Hoffman was the editor of Adventure Magazine and one of the club's co-founders, and he was a fan of Duquesne, having been publishing his writing for some time. There is a great quote in a Fritz Duquesne biography called Counterfeit Hero that I read about Fritz's involvement in the club that reads... Whenever in New York or not in prison, he faithfully showed up at the monthly meetings to report his latest adventure.
1: It was December 1913 that Duquesne became an American citizen. Soon after that, he and his wife Alice left for a tour of South America. Fritz allegedly was following an expedition of Roosevelt's and making a film about it along the way. They took a massive iron trunk with them that took two men to move, which was ostensibly to carry the movie reels and equipment.
0: While the Duquesnes were traveling, World War I began with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Because Britain was on the Allied side, Fritz automatically wanted to align himself with the Central Powers. He and Alice were in Brazil at this point, and Fritz promptly sent her home to New York, claiming that he was planning more rigorous trips into untamed wilderness that she would not enjoy. But what he actually did was go straight to the German consulate in Brazil and tell them that he wanted to help fight Britain and the Allies. So Fritz Duquesne became a contractor saboteur for Germany.
1: We're gonna get to Fritz's new career in just a moment, but first we will take a quick sponsor break.
0: This new job of Fritz's paid an annual salary of 4,000 marks plus a daily expense allowance of 10 marks. That wasn't a ton of money, uh, but for every completed mission, there was also a bonus. Fritz took to this system with enthusiasm, and he adopted two regular aliases that he used during this time, Frederick Frederick's and George Fordham. Fredericks was an actor, he also was other things along the way, Fordham was a botanist, and Duquesne would use either of them or even sometimes his own identity or others he invented on the fly as suited his purposes.
1: And his purposes were simple, at least in their directive, sabotage boats that were headed to enemy countries while they were still in port. He claimed that in this work he set more than a hundred on fire and sunk more than twenty, He would use disguises to kind of trawl around in port, eavesdropping on sailors to get information, and he would sometimes use them more directly. For example, his botanist character often shipped plant samples aboard boats that mysteriously had explosions aboard. He was not entirely undetected in this. Authorities started to notice him, and he had to become more and more careful.
0: On February 11, 1916, Fritz's alter ego, George Fordham, signed a shipping document declaring that he was returning a case filled with motion picture film and negatives to the United States and said that the case had left the U.S. in 1913, which was the year that he and Alice left for this trip. He shipped the case aboard the steamer Tennyson, which was headed to Trinidad and then New York and then Liverpool. On February 21st, the Tennyson had an explosion in the hold, and three of its crew were killed, although the captain was able to beach the damaged boat. An investigation ensued, and an arrest soon followed. The man taken into custody, who was named Bauer, confessed to his part in the crime and gave up
1: Duquesne in the process, including naming several of Duquesne's aliases. Things quickly heated up for Duquesne. He was charged by the British government with murder on the high seas, sinking and burning British ships, conspiracy, falsification of documents, and sabotaging military stores. When British authorities had realized that the man working for Germany to do so much damage was the same one who had been a British military officer, it was both infuriating and embarrassing. So they intended to pursue him and bring him to justice. Duquesne, on the run and also hunting for new business ventures to keep money flowing in, did the only thing he felt he could in such circumstances, which was that he faked his own death. On April 27,
0: 1916, the announcement of Duquesne's death hit the US papers. The story was that he had been killed in Bolivia by, quote, hostile Indians. The account of Duquesne's demise was cabled from South America. And the obituary write-up that followed, with information, quote, from a man who knew Duquesne intimately, undoubtedly Duquesne himself is full of the same sorts of over-the-top adventure stories that have continually, casually combined fiction and reality in Fritz's life story.
1: That initial story only offered some confused concern over the fate of Alice Duquesne. Had she also perished? The New York Times did not know, but they soon followed up with a second story that, yes, she was alive and back in New York and had received a letter from Fritz several weeks before he was apparently killed.
0: For 12 days, Duquesne's fate was believed to have been sealed in Bolivia. But then, on May 8th, another story hit the U.S. papers, this one written by Frederick Fredericks. (laughs) Fritz Duquesne, the report exclaimed, was alive. He had been found in rough shape, left for dead after the attack, but he was receiving aid and was expected to recover. It seems that while Duquesne initially thought death would shake Britain's pursuit of him, He soon realized that he didn't have anywhere to go. He only had a U.S. passport, so he revived himself and he headed back to New York in the hopes that the U.S. government wouldn't extradite him if he was found out, or probably more in the hopes that no one would realize he had gotten back.
1: Duquesne arrived in New York not long after this, but for a man on the run, he was not idle at all. While in South America, he had gotten involved in filmmaking projects with a school system there to try to make money. But to make the films, he needed to get back to the U.S. anyway to buy film stock. So when he got to New York, he did that, paying cash for the film, $24,000 worth. He then put it in a box labeled Statuary, stored it at a warehouse in Brooklyn, and took out a $33,000 insurance policy on it with the Stuyvesant Insurance Company under the name Frederick Fredericks.
0: (laughs) He loved that name. Uh, Mysteriously the warehouse had a fire (laughs) and that box-marked statuary was destroyed. It's unclear exactly what Fritz was telling Alice once they reunited about where he had been and what had been going on, but he did convince her to pursue the insurance policy for the warehouse box, as well as another policy that he had taken out on the alleged film in that mysterious iron case that he had shipped aboard the Tennyson. And then after convincing her to file these claims... Fritz vanished. During the time that he was unaccounted for, the HMS Hampshire was sunk by a German sub. Fritz Duquesne, who had sworn vengeance on the military commander Kitchener during the Second Boer War, claimed that he had orchestrated this sub-attack and that he was responsible for the assassination of Kitchener. And he also claimed that this was an attack ordered by an organization called the Boer Revolutionary Committee. That entity did not exist.
1: Duquesne next turned up in Washington, D.C. in July of 1916 and started to reach out to his old contacts, including his once collaborator in the Hippo Plan, Robert Broussard, who at this point was a senator. Broussard seemed oblivious to the fact that Fritz was on the run and at the adventurer's request tried to get him a government job, but that was to no avail, so it was back to New York for Duquesne. He didn't let anybody know he was in town, though. He lived in an apartment that he shared with another man rather than going back home to Alice, which was something he had done just before disappearing a few months earlier.
0: Yeah, he had gotten a separate place from her. we It's unclear why. If he was trying to protect her or if he just wanted out of the marriage and didn't want to mess with it, we don't know. He did need money, so he reinvented himself again. And this time as an Australian war hero named Claude Stoughton of the West Australian Light Horse Unit. This was all entirely fictitious. There was no such unit or person... He even invented a uniform for him. But in this guise, he became a salesman, uh, a salesman of patriotism, of his fake backstory, which was kind of a pastiche of his own experiences and some others he made up and a lot of embellishment. And mostly, he became a salesman of library bonds for the Allies. Claude Stoughton was well paid for speaking engagements, and he was put up in nice hotels. But soon, people started to notice that in social settings, Claude, when he spoke casually, seemed to have alliances toward the Germans rather than the Allies.
1: At the same time, the investigation into the insurance claims that Alice Duquesne had filed had given the insurance company and the police enough information that they realized who Duquesne really was and that he was a wanted man, not just for his insurance crimes, but for his crimes against Britain. Duquesne was arrested in late 1917 when he was returning to his apartment from a Claude Staunton tour. His belongings had already been searched and had turned up just a wealth of evidence.
0: Yeah, there was so much damning paperwork, including communications about Germany and doing what was best for Germany and also things around these these various insurance issues. It it was a pretty... uh, exciting find for the authorities. Uh, But after his arrest, Duquesne was then held and charged for two different reasons. One, the charges that the British government, particularly the murder of those three men and the bombing attack on the steamer Tennyson. Murder at sea automatically carried a death sentence if you were found guilty. And the U.S. was launching a federal inquiry into the matter to make sure that this was the right person and everything lined up. And two, the New York district attorney was examining the allegations that he had committed insurance fraud.
1: We will try to untangle Duquesne's legal situation after we take a quick break for a word from sponsors. (music) ¶¶ A
0: letter was sent to the British government's legal representation in the U.S., that was the Coudre brothers, assuring them that the British charges against Duquesne were being considered carefully as the investigation was conducted. That letter read in part, quote, In the event that the United States commissioner, after a hearing, directs that the defendant be held on the charges and be extradited, this office, on receipt of official notice from the proper department, will waive all objections to the proposed extradition.
1: In exchange for this, the British government agreed to send Duquesne back to the U.S. to face charges in the event he wasn't convicted in Britain or if his sentence was less than life imprisonment.
0: As these investigations went on, it was eventually determined by the U.S. government that nothing they could find on Duquesne's illegal activities in the U.S. would be anywhere near as serious as the charges that Great Britain had made. So the decision was made that he would be moved out of U.S. custody and given to British authorities to face trial for the explosion of the steamship Tennyson.
1: After Duquesne learned that he was to be turned over to the British government, he developed a medical condition... He was suddenly paralyzed. This was 100% fake, but initially he was moved from his prison cell to Bellevue Hospital for observation and treatment, and he was committed enough to this whole ruse that he convinced medical staff that he had indeed fallen into a state of paralysis. Anytime he needed to be moved from his bed, he depended on the orderlies and the nurses to do it for him.
0: Then, on May 26, 1919, Fritz Duquesne escaped from Bellevue Hospital. The bars of his window in the hospital's prison ward had been sawed through. Any saws used for that job had to have come from an outside source because Fritz had been searched thoroughly when he was transferred from his prison cell to his hospital bed.
1: Even the coverage in the New York Times sounds like the reporter who wrote it was kind of impressed by this whole thing. Quote, While attendants in the prison ward at Bellevue Hospital were acting in the belief that Captain Fritz Jobert Duquesne, the adventurer and romancer, was a hopeless paralytic patient, he sawed through the bars of his cell early yesterday morning and escaped by scaling two fences about seven feet high. The article goes on to mention him first dropping from the window to the ledge of an ice house and then to the ground farther below saying, quote, Even this display of agility, amazing for a paralytic, did not give him his liberty and he was forced to climb a brick wall about six feet high and an iron fence with menacing spikes about eight feet high. All this spectacular leaping and climbing to escape prison did not attract the attention of any of the guards or attendants of the prison ward, and the absence of the, quote, paralytic patient was not noticed until the attendants made their usual rounds of the ward at 4.30 a.m.
0: To complete his ruse, Duquesne had arranged pillows and comforters roughly into the shape of a person curled into a ball in his bed and pulled his blanket over them. So, uh, again, i it's so funny. I feel like he set so many of the tropes we see in film and television. Uh, the grounds of the hospital were searched once it was realized that he was gone and they came up empty, and police developed a theory that the escapee had arranged for an accomplice to meet him with a car and a change of clothes on nearby First Avenue. Because it had been believed up to that point that Duquesne was truly paralyzed, he had not been considered dangerous or a flight risk. So the few visitors that he had were not documented on any kind of list.
1: Duquesne wrote a letter to one of his friends, allegedly from Mexico. The letter stated that Fritz had the help of friends in his escape and that they provided him with a car and had then gotten him onto a plane with an expert pilot who took him to Mexico. The friend Duquesne wrote to brought this letter to the police, and it was dismissed as a hoax. Their thinking was that he sent the letter hoping that his friend would take it to the authorities in the hopes that the Mexico story would uh, take them off of his real trail.
0: But by the end of the summer, all of the other trails had gone cold, and police did start to believe that he had indeed left the U.S., and that he was, in all likelihood, exactly where he said he was, which was Mexico. Mexico. You'll remember he traveled in South America and knew a lot of people in middle and South America that they thought he could have uh, gone to for safe harbor. There are also plenty of people that believe that he was just kind of laying low and kicking around the U.S. Uh, He definitely was in Boston for a while, at least uh, until he moved back to New York. (laughs) They weren't sure of his whereabouts, but this time he arrived in the city as a new man, Frank de Trafford Craven. Alice, his wife, had left him when his ruse had caved in uh, and he had been arrested. So this start as Craven was kind of a a fresh reinvention of himself with no
1: ties. Before this return to New York, Fritz slash Frank had spent some time, as Holly said, in Boston, getting into the movie industry by working with a financier named Joseph P. Kennedy, who had purchased the film booking offices of America. Kennedy hired Fritz for PR work That required Duquesne to move back to Manhattan. This marks a strangely conventional time in Duquesne's life. He seemed to actually just be working a job and living a quiet life for a few years. He moved on to another job at Quigley Publishing, which had him working, writing, and editing advertising copy for vaudeville acts. Although Fritz was living well but under the radar, his past caught up with him in 1932 when he was arrested again. This time, Fritz kept up his Frank de Trafford Craven persona, insisting over and over that the police had the wrong man. And just in case you're
0: curious, that Joseph P. Kennedy is in fact the father of John F. Kennedy. Uh, Defending Duquesne once he was arrested in 1932, although he continued to go by Craven, through this whole legal morass was well-known civil liberties lawyer Arthur Garfield Hayes. Hayes would later write of Duquesne and maybe brace for this one because some of it's not the best attitude. Uh, Quote, we all admired the man. Even the district attorney and judge were sympathetic. It was before Hitler's time and no one hated the Germans. After all, if there had been a murder, it was homicide in a war of many years ago. And homicide in war is heroic. Hayes
1: took the approach that, first of all, if the British government wanted to have Duquesne extradited, they would have to prove it was actually him and not this Frank Craven. Secondly, he would have to have been on British soil when he committed the crime for this extradition to stand. The British government did not really have any interest in pursuing events from the war at this point. The thinking was that it could just dredge up matters between countries that had since been settled and that there was just no need for that. So whether we were talking about Frank de Trafford Craven or Fritz Duquesne, Britain was just done with the matter.
0: But New York still had some issues. Uh, However, it was determined that since Duquesne was being held as a British prisoner awaiting transfer from Bellevue at the time of his escape, apparently at that point he had been transferred to uh, Britain, at least on paper, and since Britain had dropped the matter, there really was not any issue And so the whole thing was dismissed. This was very frustrating to some of the police and detectives that had worked on this case, but the judge was kind of like, meh.
1: If Fritz Duquesne had just gone back to his life working in entertainment advertising, he probably could have had a nice last stretch of years. But Duquesne at this point was in his mid-50s. He still had a burning hatred for Britain. He had given interviews in the press where he had explicitly said so, And in 1934, Fritz was recruited by Royal Scott Golden, who was the head of the Order of 76. That was a New York organization that was sympathetic to the Third Reich and believed that Jews were the enemy in America. Golden needed a spy and Duquesne needed a job, so they struck up a deal.
0: But... When a reporter broke the story that Fritz Duquesne was likely working for this pro-Nazi group, it was actually Duquesne's mistress, who was Jewish and learned about all of this news through the paper, like everyone else, who reached out to that reporter to help him get more info. She actually fed him information for a couple years, but Duquesne's association with this group became pretty unclear and fuzzy pretty rapidly. Within a few months, Duquesne was working instead for the Works Progress Administration, and then he opened his own business, Air Terminals Company, which was allegedly dealing in RKO stock. It may have been a front or just a a way for him to have meetings somewhere, but there's this messy, confusing assortment of details during these years that suggest whether he was working for the... Nazi group or not, it was kind of an unfocused time in his life, or he was just giving everyone the slip in every way possible.
1: But then in December of 1937, Fritz Duquesne once again became a spy for Germany, this time working for the Nazis on U.S. soil. He had been recruited by Colonel Nicholas Adolf Fritz Ritter, who was organizing a U.S. spy ring as part of Hitler's military intelligence group, the Abwehr. Ritter put Fritz in the key position in this ring, and Fritz, seeing it as one more way to continue his lifetime vow of revenge against Britain, took the job.
0: Ritter recruited almost three dozen other members to be part of this ring, one of whom was named William Siebold. You'll also see him listed as Wilhelm Siebold because he was a naturalized U.S. citizen born in Germany. And he had been recruited when he was back home visiting his mother in 1939. When he returned to the U.S. in 1940, it was under his new identity, Harry Sawyer. He had spy craft training under his belt at this point, and he was instructed to make contact with Fritz Duquesne.
1: Siebold did not want to be a spy, though. He had been told by his Nazi recruiters that his family would be hurt and that they would reveal secrets about him to the U.S. government if he didn't cooperate. He was fearful of losing his U.S. citizenship and his life in New York, so Siebold had agreed to this. But while he was still in Germany, he had made a surreptitious trip to the U.S. Embassy in Cologne, disclosed what he was being forced to do, and told the Consul General that he was a loyal U.S. citizen. So the FBI was waiting for Siebold when he arrived back in New York, kept an eye on his movements as he went through the motions of fulfilling his mission for Germany. basically being a double agent at this point.
0: Yep. And it was through Siebold that the FBI identified Fritz Duquesne. Duquesne was supplying Germany with information. Anything to do with British ships that he could find, information that he gathered while posing as a student, writing letters of curiosity to industrial companies that were working on war material, and even material that he said he got by breaking into a DuPont plant regarding bomb designs. Duquesne was a wealth of information, not only on details about what the U.S. and Britain were doing but also in detailing methods of sabotage that could be employed by Germany to weaken the military power of the Allies.
1: President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was briefed on Duquesne's involvement with this spy ring. Resources were allocated to have Duquesne followed, although he was pretty excellent at shaking a tail, even though he wasn't the young man he once was. He was in his early 60s by this point. He often shaved a few years off when people ask him his age, though.
0: But most damning was that while Duquesne was feeding this information to Siebold, he was being recorded. And this was all happening, keep in mind, before the U.S. had officially entered the war. So this was a very eye-opening look at Germany's spy efforts before becoming part of the conflict. They were spying on the U.S. way before they were officially declared part of this conflict. Fritz, who was going by the nickname The Duke at this point, even unknowingly befriended one of the FBI agents who was surveilling him because he was very outgoing and friendly. And the two had had this not exactly chance meeting that had been orchestrated by the agent. But like everyone else, this FBI man, Special Agent Raymond Newkirk, found Fritz incredibly charming. And even though he was completely dedicated to his job, he admitted that he couldn't help developing a fondness for him.
1: Finally, on June 29th, 1941, the FBI had enough information on the spy ring to start making arrests. They had slow-played their surveillance to make sure nobody got suspicious and to make sure they could collect enough evidence to have an airtight case. When Newkirk arrived with friends and then told Duquesne he was under arrest once they were all inside Fritz's apartment, the spy did not say a word. His live-in girlfriend, Evelyn Lewis, was also arrested, along with 31 other members of the ring. By the time the guilty pleas and the trials for those who pleaded innocent were over, Duquesne's spy ring had wrapped up a combined total of more than 300 years in prison sentences. Duquesne was sentenced to 18 years with a $2,000
0: fine for violating the Registration Act of 1938. His testimony during the trial, in which he told his entire life story, at least his version of it, completely enthralled the courtroom. He said that he would never do anything to hurt the United States, but that he would do anything to hurt Britain. But Fritz had finally landed himself in a spot that he could not escape from, as the evidence was simply too clear in proving his treachery. Despite his advancing years and some health issues, Fritz was classified as a maximum custody prisoner at Leavenworth.
1: Early into his incarceration, Fritz started exhibiting a number of ailments, including rapidly advancing senility. But due to this history of faking illness while in custody, there was some doubt about how serious these ailments were. Additionally, contraband items, including razor blades, were found in his possession pretty often. In 1945, he was moved to a medical facility for federal prisoners in Missouri. As the 40s drew to a close, it seemed as though his doctors were willing to work on his behalf for an early release due to his deteriorating mental health. Although his daily report write-ups by staff note kind of an uptick in his mental and physical health once things started to go his way in this regard. Yeah, once he knew
0: that doctors were like, we're working to get you uh, a shorter sentence, which ultimately did happen, he was like, oh, great. (laughs) Uh, suddenly a little more uh, tuned in to his mental acuity and uh, a little bit better physical energy. So while he was still incarcerated, Fritz actually tried to sue 20th Century Fox. This was over the movie The House on 42nd Street, which featured a character inspired by Fritz Duquesne. Fritz claimed that his spy ring had made this movie successful and that the studio was using their wealth to keep him incarcerated. Uh, This was like his other hobby letters writing about how poorly he was treated, right in line with all of that, but it did not end in Duquesne's favor.
1: Duquesne was released from prison in the autumn of 1959, long after most of his other co-conspirators in the spy ring had been paroled. He was destitute. He tried to sue the FBI for loss of valuable property, including diamonds that he claimed were taken when he was arrested. He was awarded the $400 they had taken from his wallet, but his more exorbitant claims were dismissed. The Department of Welfare arranged for him to move into the London Arms Nursing Home.
0: On December 21st, 1955, which was Fritz Duquesne's 78th birthday, he gave one last talk at the Adventurers Club. Having him there at all after his spy conviction caused some friction among the members, but ultimately the evening went without incident. And after that, Fritz decided that he could not live in the nursing home anymore, and he got his own apartment. That was short-lived, however. He fell, and he broke his hip, and he was admitted to the city hospital on what was then called Welfare Island, that is now Roosevelt Island. His recovery was going well, but then he had a fatal stroke on May 24th, 1956.
1: Wanted to close out with a comment about Fritz Duquesne, written by Frederick Burnham, who had orders to kill Duquesne during the Anglo Boer War and who worked with him on that hippo plan. Quote Much has been written about Duquesne, most of it rubbish, yet his real accomplishments were so terrible and amazing that they make the yellow journal thrillers about him seem as mild as bedtime stories.
0: Oh, Fritz. <laughs> Uh, he's an interesting character because he did some really reprehensible things, but you see why people found him so likable. It's an interesting duality. Those are the people that I always wonder what's actually going on in their heads.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had some fraudsters, like if you have a spectrum of fraudsters, from the ones who were mostly harmless and kind of uh fascinating to watch to like the ones that were really harmful, but also kind of entertaining. To Like he's much... On the more on the harmful end of the spectrum, I think. Yes. Yes.
0: Fritz Duquesne. Um, I have another listener mail. This one is also about emergency medicine, which part one was as well. This is from our listener, Regina, who writes, Hello. First, let me tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. I have been a fan for years and look forward to every new episode eagerly. I have one small extra information about the podcast in emergency medicine that I think you might find interesting. You talked about resuscitation. The mannequin used for training mouth-to-mouth here in Germany, and I think also in other countries, has a washable mask. This mask is modeled from the death mask of an unknown young woman found in Paris in the 1880s. This mask was a very popular decoration because she looks so peaceful. And for this reason, it was also chosen for the training mannequin. I thought you might enjoy this detail. Keep up the good work. Um, Thank you, Regina. Uh, I have read that. I'm sure a number of people have before as well. Um, I didn't include it because it was kind of uh, one of those things that is often reported. I don't know about the veracity of it one way or another. So... It's uh, an interesting tale. Allegedly, the designer saw it in a shop window while he was walking around in Paris at one point and just thought she was incredibly pretty and very soothing to look at. So that's the scoop on Recessa Annie, or uh, Recessa Anne, I think is, is what she's called, uh, in other countries. I'm grateful she exists because lots of us have learned to do CPR thanks to that, whether she had a beautiful mask on or not. Um, If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And we encourage you to subscribe to the show. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen.